Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You all have had somebody that you know and love who has died, correct? And when the anniversary of that death comes every year, on that anniversary, how do you feel? You feel sad. You feel very sad. It evokes the memory, and especially if it's fresh, the memory of the loss. Well, imagine if somebody that you loved and knew died, let's say, the third Tuesday in February. How would you feel if every third Tuesday in February people got together and on that date, knowing it was that date, and because of that date, celebrated and called it Good Tuesday because of that person that you loved who has died, you wouldn't probably be too excited. At least you'd be mystified until it was explained to you. Well, that's uh, sort of what it's like for the world uh, sometimes looking into the church on this day and they wonder, what's so good about Good Friday? Isn't that the day, the one that you love dearly and have given your life to, the Savior died, and not only died, but died an excruciatingly painful and horrible, ignominious death. What's so good about Good Friday? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's all about results. It's all about the results that happened as uh, Good Friday, on that first Good Friday, and that transaction of what his death would bring brought. And because of the results, those are good results. And that's why we call it Good Friday. Paul put it in the book of Romans, by one man's death, one man's death, the work of one man, he has brought life into the world. The obedience of one has brought life, Paul said, to many. It's sort of like surgery. Nobody really looks forward to surgery because of its pain and danger and inconvenience unless unless that surgery is going to change your life. Then that day would be a good day. I can give you a fresh and personal example. Um, About a week and a half ago, my son Nate was out here. And he was skateboarding, and he fell off his skateboard the wrong way. He's helmeted up and protected, but he just landed the wrong way and fractured the big bone in his lower leg, the tibia, the plateau, the tibial plateau, just busted it in half as that upper condyle of the humerus smashed all of his weight down upon it. Now, uh, people have told me, Skip, you've you got to tell him to stop doing that. I mean, he's an adult. He's married. and Well, I really have no moral authority to tell him that. Because while he broke his leg, I was also on my skateboard next to him. But nonetheless, that really isn't the point. What is the point is he has been waiting for surgery. He hasn't had it yet. They rotated his leg. They put what's called an external fixator splint that is basically 
two rods, one drilled through the upper bone, one drilled through the large lower bone, and externally there are rods connecting them to keep it into place until they can do surgery. Well, that surgery is coming up um, on Monday. Two weeks from the time he broke it, he'll have surgery. I have never seen people look more forward to a surgical experience than this family. We're looking at Monday as Good Monday. Because the results will be he'll be able to get back on his feet. He'll be able to walk again. He'll have mobility and life will go on. So we celebrate this day and call it Good Friday because of the results. Now this morning, if you're looking for a text, it's going to be a little difficult. I have chosen four briefly. Um, One in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 24, followed by... Jeremiah chapter 31, followed by Romans chapter 9, followed by 1 Corinthians 11. If you've got great fingers and you just remembered all those ones that I said, that's great. If not, you can just follow along and listen. Either way, you're welcome to do so. Um, What I want to do today is make a comparison between old and new, between two things, two covenants, the old and the new. Actually, More than just two things, I want to talk about two covenants, two movements, two testaments, and two monuments. That's how this little talk that I'm going to give you will flow. Two covenants, two movements, two testaments, two monuments. Um, The old covenant was established under the law of Moses And it was established probably in its easiest to understand form in uh, Exodus chapter 24, where it says here in verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, all, they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Imagine what that would feel like to be in a crowd and somebody grabs a bunch of hyssop and starts sprinkling and drops of blood smatter on your clothing, on your hair, on your body parts. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. A covenant is simply an agreement between two parties and, for our context, between God and man. If I could briefly sum it up, there's two kinds of covenants in the Bible, an unconditional covenant and a conditional covenant. When it's conditional, both parties have to do something to fulfill their end of the bargain. If it's unconditional, there may be some responsibilities, but largely it's one of those parties' privilege to fulfill the covenant on his or her own terms. So, for example, in the Garden of Eden, what theologians call the Edenic covenant, was that a conditional or an unconditional covenant? 
It was conditional, obviously, because we're not there right now. Our forefathers got kicked out of that place because they didn't fulfill the terms of the covenant. The covenant that God makes with Moses, conditional or unconditional? It's conditional. You keep my laws and I'll bless you in this regard. You don't keep my laws and you'll be cursed in that regard. It was conditional. But the covenant God made with Abraham for his descendants and the blessing of the world and the land that God gave him was conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. God said, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this, I will do that. And Moses, or excuse me, Abraham just listened to all that God said he would do. So this is the covenant. And typically Jews, of all the covenants in the Bible, look to this covenant of Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, and not just the Ten Commandments, but the blueprint. The blueprint for the entire future of the children of Israel and how they would be conducted as he went up on Mount Sinai. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, the author calls this covenant the first covenant. The old covenant, the first covenant. And that is because the writer of Hebrews knew that there was a prediction, even back here, that this covenant would be replaced by a whole new one. And he is referring in his mind to Jeremiah 31. So here's Moses sprinkling blood on the people, reading the words of the document, the covenant, and the people enter into the first covenant, the old covenant. But Jeremiah predicted a different covenant. And now I'm turning to Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet says, by the spirit of the Lord, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and led them from the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. Do you notice they broke it? Remember what they said back in Exodus 24? We will keep it. We will do all the words of this law. Cross our hearts. Hope to die. We'll do it. God says they didn't do it. They broke it. God says I'm going to give them a new one. But this... Verse 33 is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, the old covenant made plain the will of God to people. Unmistakable. They could read it, and they knew what God's will was. But there was no power that came with that covenant to do what God wanted them to do. They said, we'll do it. God said, you didn't do it. And in that same section of the Old Testament book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy... God says, oh, that my people had such a heart that they would do that. Even God knew that they had his will, but they lacked power to do it. The new covenant promises power. The old covenant tried to control man's conduct. The new covenant changes man's character. Or to put it in musical terms for you musicians, the old covenant was like being limited to sheet music 
The new covenant is the ability to play it by ear. We hear God's song in our hearts and we have this ability to play it confidently with power. So those are two covenants, old covenant, new covenant. Now, the new covenant was also ratified with blood. Just as Moses sprinkled blood and said, this is the blood of the covenant, so too the new covenant. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and then he took the wine and he said, this is the blood of the covenant, reminiscent of the very words Moses shared, comparing the two covenants. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Two covenants. Two totally different covenants. Now, the two covenants gave rise to two movements. Two movements. One was Judaism. The other was Christianity. Uh, the basis of our civilization in the West, and especially the United States, we call it a Judeo-Christian heritage. Everything here, in terms of original values of the country, was built upon that. So the two covenants gave rise to two movements. The first movement, Judaism, began, as we saw, at Mount Sinai. It was the covenant of the law. It was the movement of law. And a group of people, Jewish people, special people, God said, I've chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be my people. They embodied his law. They embodied, or supposedly, his heritage, his purpose, The second movement, Christianity, didn't begin at Mount Sinai. It began at Mount Calvary. It was not a movement of law. It was a movement of love. It wasn't about ethnically centered people. You have to be Jewish to really enter into this. It transcended all barriers, all races. In fact, the great word that contrasts the old with the new is the word whoever. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You don't have to be one race. You don't have to be from one country. You don't have to be from one people. Whoever you are, at whatever time, at whatever place, can have life. And so the movement that started from the covenant is one of love that was to go around the entire world. Now, Paul the Apostle, in Romans chapter 9, talks about the movement of the Jewish people. And he he says it's a great heritage. This is just a couple of verses from there. He describes his people, the Israelites. Listen to what he says. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, plural, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. You say, we have a wonderful heritage. All that we are in Christ today is built upon and we stand upon the shoulders of the Jewish nation who was given the covenants, given the law, given the promises. And that's why in our Bibles we have the old and the new. We just don't read from Matthew on to Revelation. All of the Bible is the Word of God. We stand on that foundation. We stand upon that movement. But there is a difference. Just like you have two covenants, you have two movements. And John put it this way, For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Two covenants, 
two movements. The third is two testaments. Two testaments. The Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, a body of literature, 23,000 verses in 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, written over 1,500 years. Compare that to the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, 27 books, 8,000 verses, written within a century of Jesus Christ being on the earth and ascending into heaven. So both covenants that spawned both movements, both also spawned bodies of literature. Bodies of literature that we call the Old and the New Testament in our Bibles. Unfortunately, people make a mistake. You've heard this, I'm sure, where they will say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. All that reveals to me is they haven't read either of them very well. Because they're exactly the same God, but two totally different approaches. One is the approach of the first covenant. Second is the approach of the second covenant. One is based upon the blood that is sacrificed by animals instead of us year after year after year. The other is a one-time sacrifice because it was enough. That's why it was sufficient on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. Fourth and finally, the two covenants that brought the two movements that gave us the two testaments have two monuments. In the old, the first, it was the monument of the tabernacle in the, in the earlier times. They had this tent enclosure that moved through the desert and the Ark of the Covenant was kept there and little articles relating to their history and blood was sprinkled upon it. That was the monument. You had to go there to have a sacrifice offered. Later on, it was the monument of the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon built one and it was revised later on a couple of times. But that was the place where people from all over the land came every year on three great feast days at the monument, the monument of the temple. But what is the monument for us? Where is the temple for us? You're it. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we gather corporately, we embody the Lord. He is present among us wherever two or three gather in His name. Moreover, the Holy Spirit is living inside each of you in residence within you. Two totally different monuments. I find it fascinating that Jesus never said, I want you disciples to build me a big mausoleum over where I'm going to be buried so that people in generations to come will know where I have been buried. What's even more fascinating is when you go to Israel today, there's a huge disagreement as to where Jesus was buried. There's two or three different places, but nobody is sure. It obviously wasn't a big deal that a mausoleum would be placed where he died. Nor did Jesus ever say something, I want a a marble pillar constructed on the, the mountain in Galilee where I gave my famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. I want people to remember this spot. There again, we have to sort of look around when we're in Galilee and think, well, was it this place or was it that place? Well, It looks like it could have been the other place. Not a monument, 
not a mausoleum, a meal. A meal. What's our monument? A meal. The Last Supper, take these elements, Jesus said, do this often, do it in remembrance of me. You don't have to go to a temple, no big monument, like the old covenant that brought the Old Testament and the old movement. This is brand new. And you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we gather on a special day like this, we do him great honor. Because we're saying, though it was painful for you, Lord, to be beaten and rejected and bloodied, we celebrate. We celebrate because your death brought us life. The results of that surgical procedure brought life for the world. And so, and finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes these words. In verse 23, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Can you see how at that supper, the old and the new, the two sets of values, two sets of practices were shown when Jesus was participating in Passover, something from the old economy, old covenant under Moses, commanded in the law, but now saying this is different right now and from now on, this is the blood of my covenant. This will commemorate the blood that I shed once and forever for the remission of sins. And then Paul says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's three things as we take these things, these elements today, the bread and the juice that you'll be handed in just a moment. Today you are proclaiming the Lord's death symbolically. I personally do not believe in what is called transubstantiation, that you are actually touching and taking and eating the real body of Jesus and the real blood of Jesus. It is a symbol, says Paul. You are showing the Lord's death. You are symbolically demonstrating it. And so we will eat of it and we will drink of it. We will drink to remember. We will eat to remember. The world, in a few hours, will go out to the bars and drink to forget. We come and drink to remember the great sacrifice. So you proclaim his death symbolically. The second thing you do is you portray his life presently. You see, Jesus said, and Paul quotes it, This is, not was, is the new covenant. You're in it. You have that life now. You enjoy it now. I pray that your Christian experience never gets so bad that you're always looking back. I remember the good old days and God was so close to me and there was such power. Really? 
You have to live on the past blessings? Is God not doing anything at all that's really cool and good now? So you portray his life presently. The third thing that you and I do, according to verse 26, is we predict his coming ultimately. I want to just have this settle on your hearts before we pass these elements out. As often as you, as we, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It tells me that part of communion isn't just looking back, but it's looking forward. Every time we take communion, it's a reminder not only what Jesus did, but what he's going to do. You know what he's going to do? He's going to come back. I know the Terminator said, I'll be back, but Jesus said it way before he ever came up with it. <laughs> and he will be back. And, and, when we, and when we take communion, when, we hold, when you hold that cup in just a moment and that bread, you know, you're, I want you to think of this. There's more. There's more. And it's way better. It's way better. The best is yet to come. He's coming. We're taking this until he comes. And we'll take it next month and next year until he comes. But he will come. Jesus predicted it at the Last Supper. He said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine anymore until I drink it and eat it with you in the kingdom. He was looking forward to the future. We're going to pass these elements out in just a moment. We have baskets of them because we were ready for outside, so they're, they're prepackaged. And um, sort of like pre- or in-flight meals, it's all packaged together. Um, there, there's two parts. If you take the first, unpeel the, the top portion of the cup, there's a wafer of bread under it. You peel the second layer and the juice is under that. And so we're going to sing, we're going to worship, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and um, our fellows are going to pass those out to you. But this really is good, Friday. It's really good. It's good because of the results. We went from a living death to deathless life because of Good Friday. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we dare to celebrate We dare to proclaim victory because of the victory cry of our Savior on the cross who said to Telestai, it is done, completed, accomplished, finished. We don't have to bring an animal next week to church here. We don't have to bring a sacrifice to a temple every year. It's done. It's over. Jesus' life was so perfect and His atoning death was so complete that no one ever has to bring anything else. That is enough to save any man, any woman, whoever. We thank you, Lord, for the new covenant. We thank you for the new movement of Christianity and how it is spreading in our families, community, and around the world. We thank you for the New Testament. And we thank you, Lord, for the new monument which is really not a monument per se at all, but simply, here we are, the temple of God, taking elements of a meal to remember the payment. We thank you for the old and how we can base the present upon it. But I pray we would not live in the old any longer, but in the new. Not live under guilt any longer, 
but live in confident freedom and joy because of Jesus, our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. If you'd peel the very top of the wrapper off, you'll see there's a wafer of bread underneath it. Now, before uh, we do this, I made an assumption that could be a dangerous assumption to be made. And that is, I'm assuming, though not rightfully so, that every single person in here has a relationship with the Lord. Um, If that's true, awesome. This is a wonderful time. But if it it, it is that you're not... uh, a believer yet. What I mean by that is not a nice person. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're not nice. You may be nicer than any of us. But you could simply be a nice person or even a religious person, but if you're, you're not committed to Christ personally, if it's not really real in your life, if following Jesus isn't really real, then this would just be going through the motions. And did you know the Bible actually says that we're not to take communion if we're just going through the motions? That we could be eating and drinking unworthily doesn't mean you shouldn't take it if you feel unworthy. Get past that. This is just taking it in a way that doesn't honor the Lord frivolously or especially as an unbeliever because it says that you and I would be drinking and eating damnation to ourselves. Kind of like going, yeah, God, really get me good in the end, would you? And so the Bible says, pass them up. Don't take them. Now, If my assumption is correct and everyone is a believer, then you take these freely. If not, don't don't take. The second option would be, is even before we go any further, if you at this very moment in time would surrender your life to Christ, but simply by faith, that His work was enough for you on Calvary and you personally receive Him as Savior and Lord, then you take these things freely. So would you just bow your head with me for a moment? And um, I just want you to think about your life for just a moment. And if my description fit you, if you are not one of his children, it is not a real thing with you. It's not a real relational reality. But if you're at a place where you want it to be so, and you're willing to turn to Christ as Savior than right now where you are. From your heart, you could say this to him, and I encourage you to do so, just to follow along with me or repeat it where you are, out loud or in your heart. Say, Lord, I know I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I place my trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn from those things I'm ashamed of in my past, and I turn to you as my Savior, and I want to live for you as my Lord. If you prayed that, whether you feel something inside or not, if you meant it by faith, you are a child of God, and new life begins now for you. This wafer represents his broken body. It was done at a Passover meal where bread was taken and broken and distributed. Jesus made it about him, and so we make it about him as well. 
doing this to honor him in remembrance of him. Let's eat together. The cup represents his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses a man, a woman, from all sin. And so we are taking this, testifying that he has done that for us. And in thanksgiving to him, we honor him by taking this cup and proclaiming his death until he comes again. Let's take together. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.